And you may be seated. If you want to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, this summer we are looking at a series, How to Make Jesus Lord of Your Life. And we're systematically looking at different passages in the Gospel of Luke. Today, we're in Luke chapter 23. Uh, If you're new here today, uh, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. It's an absolute joy and delight to have you with us. So, as you're looking for Luke 23, I'm sure you've heard of the Continental Divide, right? Uh, When I was a kid growing up in Montana, I distinctly remember riding with my parents and uh, seeing a sign for the Continental Divide and my dad explaining it to me. Pretty fascinating. There is a rather contiguous line that goes all the way through North and South America in the United States. It's uh, all through the Rocky Mountains. And it's this invisible line, but it actually determines where water will run. Uh, in In the United States, we actually call it the Great Divide. So on one side, uh, the water flows to the east, to the Rio Grande, to the Mississippi River for the most part, ends up in the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic Ocean. But on the other side of the Continental Divide, why, the water makes its way eventually to the Pacific Ocean. And I would think, like, you know, as a kid, like, wow, imagine that. You could be standing, like, on a mountain, and you'd have feet going in either direction. One side, the water's going this way, and the other, water would go to the Pacific Ocean. How cool is that? And it is rather fascinating But I want you to know that there is an individual, by virtue of his life, his death, and his resurrection, is the one who is the great divider in humanity and all of history. And I'm speaking of Jesus Christ. And one thing that you need to know about Jesus is this. The cross of Christ is the continental divide of all humanity. In fact, your response to him will determine your eternity. Today, for a few minutes, I would like you and I to wrestle with this question. What will you do with Jesus Christ, the man in the middle? And to help us to really understand who he is, I'd like to introduce to you uh, two men who actually had shared experiences with Jesus. In fact, they were with him. Uh, when Jesus was crucified, that's because they were on either side of him. You're probably familiar with him being these two men referred to as the thieves on the cross. History has lost their names, but we actually have a record of what took place on the cross, especially with these two thieves, as they had an eyewitness account of what was taking place. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to speed of what's going on here. Jesus Christ came to this earth. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. It's the incarnation where the eternal Son of God entered into humanity. And he did so and lived a perfect life, meaning he never sinned. He fulfilled all righteousness. And then he actually became the perfect sacrifice for sin. He is promised in the Old Testament. He fulfills these Old Testament prophecies And when we come to the events that are recorded in Luke chapter 23, the Jewish establishment, the Pharisees and the scribes, they had dead set their heart against him. They were absolutely opposed to Jesus being the Messiah, not certainly their Messiah. They couldn't actually dispute the fact that he was fulfilling prophecies made uh, about him, but he simply didn't work into their rules-based establishment. In fact, he confronted them on their legalism, and they're saying the right words with their mouth, but their heart was far from him. 
And so what took place is the Jewish leadership basically handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities. Pilate and Herod, they conducted these trials. On three different occasions, the Roman uh, government said that this man is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. But the Jewish leaders on this Passover wanted to put him death, and so early in the morning they kept yelling that crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate, sensing that his back against the wall, and there was just simply nothing that he could do to appease these Jews, he tried, he passed sentence, and had Jesus delivered over to their will and had him crucified. And it's at this point here where Jesus, having been stripped of his freedom, his rights, his ministry, his friends, and now after they've scourged him and shredded him, they have stripped him of his dignity, and he was led to the cross. And that's where we pick it up in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. And it says, Two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And here they are, these Criminals, this word could be translated to those who do violence and rob openly. It was also the word that was used of insurrectionists, those who tried to bring about a revolt, in this case, a revolt against the Roman government. It is very likely that they were insurrectionists because in Mark chapter 15, verse 7, you ever remember a guy by the name of Barabbas? It says in Mark 15, 7 that it was Barabbas who had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. And you remember what Pilate did? He really wanted to let Jesus go because, after all, he was innocent. And so he had, they had created this little um, gift, so to speak, for the Jewish people where the Romans would select certain prisoners and say, hey, listen, just to show that we're not totally evil, we'll give you a, a pick here of some folks that we've selected. They're, gonna be, they're in prison, most likely going to be executed. Take your pick. We'll release one. Pilate said, I'm going to limit it down to two There's Barabbas or there's Jesus. Who do you want? And it's the Jewish leaders that stirred the people to call out, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And so Barabbas was set free, and Jesus took his place. And so it's likely that these criminals were insurrectionists. Maybe they'd been involved in murder. It must have been an incredibly restless night if they slept at all. Their beards mangy, dirty, dark. Their their clothes now shredded, blood everywhere. And they are, as it says here, they are being led to the place called the skull. They are making their way with Roman soldiers. So they would go down the Via Dolorosa. It would be, they would likely have a Roman centurion on a horse with a whip, just beating back the rabble, because even though this is early in the morning, word had gotten out that Jesus, everyone that we've been talking about, in fact, five days earlier, they'd been calling out Hosanna, son of David. Remember that? putting their coats and palm branches and Jesus riding in on a donkey, right? Remember that? Well, they, uh, they're all gathered to find out what was going on. And so this Roman on his horse beating the people away as they're making their way down this path. As was the practice, each person that was going to be crucified was actually had four Roman soldiers assigned to them to guard them and to actually carry out the execution. And so they'd be making their way. And that's exactly what we see here. Two others who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And they're going to, verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. In Latin, it's Calvaria, or in Aramaic, you've probably heard Golgotha. 
And, you know, we've probably sung some songs about Calvary, right? And Calvary, and do you uh, know where that comes from? Why it comes from that Latin word, Calvaria. It means skull. That's what you're singing about. And this was a place, there in fact is a place that, uh, like a hill outside of Jerusalem, it kind of looks like a skull. Or maybe it was called the skull because that's where so many people died. But that is where they take Jesus and these two criminals. And it says, verse 33, that they, they crucified him and the criminals. In Greek, it's only three words. In English, uh, four. There is no detail really given. But crucifixion was the harshest, most painful, torturous way of killing a person that the Romans had. It had been invented uh, in the 6th BC uh, by the Persians, but Rome had perfected it. But this gospel accounts and all of them never give us any of the excruciating details. And by the way, do you know where that word excruciating comes from? Crucify. It speaks of, it comes from this event, crucifixion. There's no mention of nails going through hands, the elements that would bring about the death or the hoisting of the cross, any of that. It just simply says, They crucified him. And notice, on either side, there were the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Rome said, you know, if you're a Roman citizen, uh, you can't be crucified like this. You would be stripped of all your dignity. And so it's very rare that a Roman citizen would ever face this kind of torture. And when Rome did crucify, and they did it rather regularly, they always did it in very public places along roads where people were gathered. And it was all to send a message. Listen, you mess with us, you don't follow our laws, you try some sort of insurrection, I want you to take a real good look at the torture being played out before you. Learn, watch, and don't make the same mistake. I want you to know it was a very effective tool of intimidation. And so here they are, these three being crucified. But it's interesting. Look at this next verse, verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. You've heard of the the seven last statements of Jesus on the cross, right? This is the first of them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Uh, In the Greek tense, this is an imperfect tense. Um, That means this was said over and over. It's not like Jesus said this once. He kept saying it over and over. Father, forgive them as he is hung on this cross, for they do not know what they're doing. They, They simply can't really understand all that's playing out, but yet they see this intimacy that the Son has, Jesus has with his Father. And instead of like calling out like, you're going to face huge judgment. Death is upon you. You're going to hell. It's, it's, it's not that. It's, it's Jesus. Not only doing what he said to love your enemies, but fulfilling the scriptures that he would be pierced through for our transgressions. And like Isaiah says uh, in Isaiah 53, written 700 years prior to this event, that it would be he You would always know the Messiah because not only would he be numbered with the transgressors, he would be interceding and praying for them. And that's what we find right here. Here is Jesus, and he's praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This doesn't mean that they would just automatically, unconditionally, just be forgiven. 
This is a prayer to the Father that these people, the ones that were bringing about his crucifixion, the ones that had handed him over, would come to realize the significance of their sin, how far they had missed the mark. Instead of embracing and and falling before the living Son of God, why they were trying to crucify him and and kill him. And so Jesus makes this prayer. And then, of course, you see... uh, They cast lots, the soldiers did, dividing up his garments among themselves. This is what the soldiers would do after they had nailed individuals to a cross. They played a little game. These people would be stripped down on the cross, down to a loincloth. So whatever garments, and these garments, likely pretty bloody, pretty dirty, pretty messy, they just make a game out of it, either drawing straws or some throwing dye, and all of a sudden, and somebody would be the lucky winner of the garment. And that's what's taking place here. They are simply making a mockery of Jesus. And if you want to see what that looked like, take a look at verse 35. And the people stood by, looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You see, some people say, well, well, if Jesus was really the Messiah, there's no way, if he's the Son of God, that he would go to the cross. Actually, that's what all the prophecies point to, that there would be one who would pierce through for our transgressions. There would be one who would bear the sin of many. And they knew these scriptures, but they just didn't put it together. In fact, I want you to know this is the issue. Why did they despise and reject Jesus? Just listen to them. What are they saying in verse 35? If you really are the Christ of God, the chosen one, right? He saved others, right? Can he save himself? And it's real mockery, but listen when they say Christ. Uh, that is, um, it means anointed one. In Hebrew, Messiah. And the Jewish people anointed three different offices. It would be a pouring of an oil indicating God's choice, but also a, it signified, symbolized empowerment. And they did it for their prophets, priests, and kings. But in the case of Messiah, and the word Messiah or Christ means anointed one, He is all three offices. He must be eternal, the Son of God, and he is the one who will be also truly man, fully man, and be the one who could actually pay the penalty of sin, which is death. And so they're calling out, if you're really the Christ, the chosen one, why don't you try to save yourself? And can't you just hear the sneering and the mocking? And and of course, look at even the soldiers. They join in, verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. You know, I'm sure you've encountered folks that um, use Jesus or Jesus Christ as slang or swear word. Or if like you really want to put emphasis, you want to you be taken seriously or uh, come across cool, you just kind of throw that out. You're afraid of no one, not even God. Where, where does, by the way, that all get started? Using Jesus Christ as a curse Where does that come from? Well, I want you to know we have a 2,000-year history of it, and it all gets started right here. When you hear people taking Jesus' name in vain, I want you to know it just shows you the depravity of the heart. These are the echoes of 2,000 years of just rejection of Jesus. It's a mockery, a mockery of his name. And that's what's taking place here. And it is really the issue. Is he really the Christ? 
And look at verse 38. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. So what would happen is uh, when Rome was going to crucify someone, they would hang a placard. It had a rope and a board, and it was listed on the board. It was written down what the crime was, why you were being killed. Likely for the two thieves, because they're insurrectionists, rebellion, revolt, right? But in Jesus' case, Pilate had written this. It was written in three different languages. This is the king of the Jews. It was what he carried, written in Aramaic, Latin, Greek. And then when he got to the cross and they actually put him on it, it would be nailed overhead so that everybody who would be gathered, and there would be a lot of people watching this, they could read. And this is it simply says, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate likely had that just because it was a small sense of just getting revenge at the Jewish leaders. So here's your king. That's what you think and do with your king. I'll put it right on there. But know this, Jesus was crucified because of who he is, the king of the Jews. And so you find that, that um, verse 39, that one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark record that both of the criminals on either side were actually insulting, hurling abuse. The Greek word for abuse is blasphemeo. It's where we get our word blasphemy from. It's to say slanderous things about God. It is to rip and shred that which is holy and, and sacred, to say things that are not true, to use his name in vain, to mock God, however that might be, using your words to do it. And that's what they're doing. It really shows you, man, how deep does depravity go? Like, you're dying on a cross. You're going through all sorts of excruciating pain, but you're still going to use whatever breath and words you got to yell to the degree that you're able insults and blasphemy toward Jesus. And so that's what's happening. If you want to see what that looked like here, verse uh, uh, 39, one of the criminals were hanged there, and those who were hurling abuse at him saying, Are you not the Christ? There again is the issue. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. It's very likely these prisoners had heard of Jesus long before this event. I mean, everybody in Israel was talking about him. You don't do all these miracles, healing people, giving sight to the blind, curing leprosy, casting out demons, and raising people from the dead, which Jesus did three different times, without taking a lot of notice. Word spread like wildfire. And so here he is. This is one of these prisoners like, Get us off this cross if you're the Christ. Save yourself and save us. He's thinking about himself. It's very interesting. These two prisoners, along with Jesus, they, why, they walk down the exact same road, but it's very interesting. One of these prisoners went a different direction than the other. There is a, a change of heart that takes place. In fact, you can see it. Look at verse 40. The other um, criminal, the other answered, rebuking him, and said, do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Don't you fear God? You and I, we're on the same sentence of condemnation. Don't you fear him? What does it look like when God is changing a heart? What do we see when God changes a heart? I want you to know that this passage in the Gospel of Luke 
shows us. It's not, it's rarely discussed. Very few times do we even think about the thieves and what was discussed. And yet, if you want to see what does it look like when God changes a heart, I want you to find it. It's, it's actually right here in the text. And in fact, let's take a look at it. Well, I want to highlight a few points on this. So verse 40, you got this like, hey, what are you doing? We're, don't you even fear God? We're in the same sentence of condemnation, verse 41. And indeed, we're suffering justly for we're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What would lead to such a drastic change? I mean, both of them are hurling abuse, insulting, ridiculing Jesus, but one has this change of heart. What would have led to that? Well, of course, they would have known about Jesus, but then maybe when it was Jesus and he was making his way to the cross, remember those women would come up to him and he said, hey, you need to be praying and weeping for yourself. Remember that? But it likely was that statement that Jesus kept saying over and over, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Such intimacy with the Father, such care and concern, love being manifest. You could even say love being poured out. While reviling, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But he kept him trusting himself to him who judges righteously. God started working in this man's heart. And the first thing you see when God changes a heart is this. We see ourselves for who we are. Do you see that in verse 41? He said, indeed, we are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. You see, when God starts moving your heart, you actually start seeing who you really are, how you have truly tried to do life on your own. Everything that God said is holy, sacred, moral, ethic. You're like, oh, I'll make my own calls and do what I want. But when God starts changing your heart, you see like, whoa, what I'm doing, how I'm living, what I'm saying, this is an affront to a holy God. This is indeed missing the mark. But it goes beyond just like recognizing you missing the mark. It comes to an understanding that you deserve the punishment you're going to face. Do you see what he says? I, I don't want you to miss this because this is absolutely profound. He says, indeed, we're suffering justly. We're getting what we deserve, right? We're receiving what we deserve for our deeds. It's pretty rare to find someone that not only knows that they're guilty, but says, you know what? I actually deserve the punishment I'm facing. It's so rare in our society now. It's called taking responsibility. Integrity, for most people, has reached such a low level that well, I'm, a, I'm a victim. It's everybody else's problem. I'm never going to take ownership for my actions or my responsibility. And that's pretty much what floats today except when God changes your heart, you start seeing not only have I missed the mark, I'm deserving of the punishment I'm facing. Let me show you something else. When God changes your heart, you not only see yourself for who you are, but notice this. We see Jesus for who he is. Did you see what he said? He's, he said, listen, we're getting what we deserve, but this guy, this man in the middle, he's innocent. Jesus is innocent. And then not only did he declare his innocency, he sees that Jesus is without sin, but he also understands that indeed he is the king. Yeah, there's a placard. Yes, he heard all these insults about him being the king of the Jews. But do you see what he says? He says, verse 42, and he was saying, 
uh, in the Greek, this imperfect again, it means he said this on multiple occasions, not just once. He kept saying this over and over. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me. This is a plea for forgiveness. This is a, an expression of devotion to Christ the King. This is an absolute change of heart. You see, we see Jesus for who he is. And the third thing we find is we see our need for Jesus to bring us into his kingdom. You see, the first thief, remember that, you know, he's hurling abuse, save us, save yourself, right? Remember that? All he could see was himself. I mean, when you're lost and you're blinded by your own sin, that life is all about you. That you just, you can only see you. But when God changes your heart, you realize there's a lot more to life than just the here and now. Do you know that you're going to live eternally? Do you know that? Well, it's up for debate or discussion. I don't know if I believe that. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It is the reality. And the one thief, all he can think about is like, man, this is a terrible situation. Get me off this cross. But this thief that has a changed heart, he recognizes, yeah, this is a terrible situation I'm in right now, but it could be far worse and will be unless Jesus brings me into his kingdom. And that's why he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In fact, he says it repeatedly. That's, my friends, what happens when God is changing your heart. But then notice what Jesus says. If it wasn't written, we would like, that could, this could never happen. Because these two thieves, the, everybody are gathered say they, they're getting what they deserve. They're wretched. There is absolutely no way they could ever go to heaven. They're vile, evil. They're sin personified. But I want you to see what Jesus said to the man who had a change of heart. He was going to have not only a change of life for whatever life he had on this earth left, but a change of eternity. Look what Jesus said, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today, look at the absolute assurance. Truly, as he's gasping and saying these things from the cross to this one criminal, Today, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is a loan word from the Persians. It means garden. It's referred to like the Garden of Eden. And Jesus says, this is just for a few more hours, but today, forever, you will be with me in my kingdom, in paradise. In the three times this word is used in the Greek New Testament, it always refers to heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for those who truly have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what he says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. I want you to know that paradise is possible. Heaven is a reality. Why? Because all of what Jesus is accomplishing on the cross. You see, the wages of sin is death. Either you're going to pay the eternal judgment for your sin, eternal death, which means separation, or Jesus pays it in your place, and you put your faith and trust in him. That's why this is possible. And you know why we consider the cross glorious? I mean, the cross is an instrument of torture. Why is it glorious? It's glorious simply because of this, the man in the middle, who is a bringing about and accomplishing the salvation for all who will truly believe in him. You know, really, it's rather an inexplicable dilemma. How is it that two people can see the same things, hear the same words, 
but draw two different conclusions. For one thief, he draws the conclusion that, that in Jesus, there was a certain hope. For the other thief, the other criminal, dying on a cross, all he can do is see himself. These two criminals, by the way, why they represent all of humanity. They have two different destinations, two different even earthly experiences with Jesus. You see, Jesus is the continental divide in all of humanity. And I would just like to ask you, which thief do you identify with? Which one? Like, oh, I'm not a bad person. I've done nothing wrong. I don't have sin. Please. Right? If we, if, if we could just play a videotape of just some of the things of your past and thoughts that you've had and the things that you've done and said, I mean, you'd all be just horrendously in shame, right? Which is like, you can't, oh, boy. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. Which thief do you identify with? You know, your faith is only good as the object in which it is placed, right? Is your faith in yourself? Hmm, how's that really going to work for you? Or is your faith in the one who came to suffer and die and pay the penalty for your sin? Do you remember last week when we looked at Luke 19.10? That's where Jesus' mission is. Remember what he said? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you're like, why did Jesus even come to this earth? What's the deal? He came to seek and to save people who were lost, separated from the Father, die and pay the penalty for sin, so that those who believe in him by virtue of his resurrection can live forever with him in heaven. That is the gospel. And that is why Jesus came. And so let me just ask you, what are you doing with the man in the middle? Our response to Jesus has eternal implications. In fact, you could say it this way. Our past, present, and future is directly tied with what you do with the God-man in the middle. In 2010, uh, you probably have heard of this. Uh, It was on the news. It was a a pretty big deal. Uh, There was a woman by the name of Shirley Digert of Teague, Texas. She was turning 54, grandmother of three, and uh, she wanted to do something like really exciting to celebrate her birthday. I mean, you hit 54 once, She's like, you know what? What I'd like to do is jump out of a plane and parachute. Like, that was her idea of celebrating her birthday. So she wanted to get on a plane um, about 13,000 feet. Of course, you have an instructor, kind of like one of those little tandem dives jumping out of the plane. Let's do it together, right? And that's what she wanted to do. In fact, this is a big deal this, uh, that her husband was there. Her two sons and her three grandchildren were all here to take in the big event of Shirley, the grandmother, jumping out of the plane. Uh, In fact, here's a picture of the two. Um, The instructor, a guy by the name of Dave Hartsock, there they are, before they get into the plane. So they make their way, you know, and they're flying up there, the door's open, and it's time to jump. And so they do, and I, like, I would never want to do something like this. I mean, there's a lot of ways to celebrate your birthday. I would not choose this one, but that's what they did, and they jumped out. Look at that. And here you are. I mean, you're free-falling, like, why are you doing this? But I mean, I would only do that if you absolutely had to, but, you know, you think everything's fine, right? And so they're free-falling, and it's like, it's time to pull the chute. And so Dave does. But when he pulls open the parachute, somehow the chute gets tangled up, and it's only partially filled, and so they start spinning. 
And Dave's like, well, I, I got to resolve this issue. But he looks, and the release point on the second shoot, because they always carry a second shoot, right? Just in the rare occasion, like something like this might happen, it's all tied up, and he cannot release the second shoot. She's panicking, starts praying, asking God to save. And, he real, and Dave realizes, we're going about 40 miles an hour. We're too close. And then he gives this command, Shirley, lift up your feet. She doesn't know why, but she obeys and does it. And then Dave rotates his body underneath hers, and they start waiting for impact. In fact, this is a picture of what took place. Her grandkids, her kids, her husband are all watching this. And Dave puts his body between hers and gets ready for the impact. And they hit the ground. Surely, Digert snapped several vertebrae in her, vertebrae in her neck. She had a surgery, was in ICU for a week. She is perfectly fine. Dave Hartsock, on the other hand, um, he did survive the fall, but apart from just barely moving his right arm just a little bit, he is completely paralyzed from the neck down. He completely shattered his spine. As you might imagine, Shirley and Dave have become extremely close and very good friends. And of course, why? Because he laid down his life for her. And I want you to know that this helpless woman would have received the full effect of the impact. She would not have survived had it not been for Dave. On a much grander scale, that's what God has done by sending Jesus. He's the man in the middle, and he took the full brunt of God's just wrath against sin, and he absorbed it in his body on the cross so that you and I will never, ever face the full effects and the full penalty of our sin. Because Jesus, the man in the middle, died on our behalf. And so I want to just ask you, well, I've got your full attention. What will you do with the man in the middle, the God-man, Jesus Christ? I want you to know you are, you're far more sinful than you realize but you are immensely more loved than you've ever imagined. And if you question, does God really love me? Does he care? All you need to do is think of the man in the middle. What's going to take place right now is we're going to share in communion together. Now, if you didn't receive one of these cups, just put up your hand and one of the ushers will...